The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. We're continuing our sermon series entitled I Am Jesus. Throughout the, New Te- or throughout the book of John, Jesus gave us several metaphors to help us describe and better understand who he is. And this morning, we're going to be in John chapter number 10, verse number 10 and verse number 11. The Bible says, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Verse number 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. This morning, pastor is going to bring a message entitled, I am the shepherd. Thank you once again for being a part and coming to worship with us at Ambassador Baptist Church. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, then we are in the middle of a series of messages going through the Gospel of John, looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. In our finite comprehension, in our limited scope of thinking, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, understood that using visual imagery and using metaphors would help us to understand all that he was and all that he is. And so each Sunday, we've been looking at a different one, each one of these passages where Jesus declares, I am, and then uses a particular metaphor. So a few weeks ago, we looked at where Jesus said, I am the bread. Uh, Then a couple weeks back, we looked at the uh, metaphor where Jesus declared, I am the light. And then last week, we looked here in John chapter number 10, where Jesus declared, I am the door. And so this week, we're continuing this series with the message simply entitled, I Am the Good Shepherd. And we find this here in verse number 11 of our text. And as we stated last week, uh, there in the kind of Middle East where the ancient biblical history took place, down in the uh, area of Jerusalem, the valley was very rocky. And because it was rocky, they're in the agrarian culture in which they found themselves in. It was very difficult to grow things. And so they would do much of their growing, much of their harvesting, much of their planting on the hills outside of Jerusalem. And then they would leave the valley floor for the shepherds. And so there those shepherds would come and they would then during the evening, they would lead their sheep down to the valley floor. And then in the day, they would lead the sheep up to the greener pastures where some of the brooks and the water would be. And so in this uh, historical context, Jesus declares himself to be here the good shepherd. Now, As we dive into this particular metaphor, we understand that Jesus can call himself the good shepherd for two primary reasons. And that is because Christ is one, both all-powerful, and he is two, all-knowing. It's a beautiful thing to know that we serve a God that knows everything that there is. But for him to simply know everything there is, and yet not really be able to do anything about it, would sell him short. And so we see that our God is a God who both knows all, but beyond that, he also is all-powerful as well. So this is going to lead us to a couple of insights that are specifically highlighted here in John chapter number 10 in response to where Jesus declares himself to be the shepherd. And so in this passage, we're going going to look at two emphases of this reality here today. Let's begin by looking here at verse number 11. Jesus says, I am, notice this, 
the good shepherd. You say, why does he refer to himself as the good shepherd? Because in the earlier portion of the uh, chapter there, verses 1, 2, and 3, he's going to talk about others who try to pretend they're shepherds, but they are not good shepherds. They come, in verse 10, they come to kill and to steal and to destroy. They are not the good shepherds, which leads us here to our first thought this morning, if you're following along and taking notes, and that is simply this. The I am tells us who we are. So the I am, that he is our shepherd, tells us that we are, first and foremost, I want you to see this, protected. We are protected. Notice he says this, he giveth his life for the sheep. The Bible tells us here that he leads them to go in and he leads them out. He's a shepherd that protects. He's a shepherd that guards. He's a shepherd that sustains. And see, God does this not just eternally. We talked about this last week, how God eternally protects us, but he also presently protects and sustains us as well. Now, if I were to ask you which passage in the scriptures most famously depicts God as our shepherd, uh, most of us would raise our hand and and we would shout out probably what passage in the book of Psalms kind of uh, unpacks us a little bit. Let's get interactive for a moment. Psalms 23, yeah, Psalms 23. There's, you know, it's just famous for knowing here and speaking and reminding us that he is our shepherd. Psalms 23, verse 4 says this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now notice what it didn't say. It doesn't say, I will fear no evil because you're going to make sure that all my finances stay together. That's not what the scriptures say. It, it doesn't say here in this passage that I will fear no evil because my health will always stay intact. That's not why this uh, author could declare this. He didn't say, I will fear no evil because I will always have a good job. I will always have a solid marriage. My children will always turn out. This is not why here the psalmist could say, I will fear no evil. Here's why he could say, I fear no evil. He says this, I will fear no evil because here, thou art with me. For the psalmist, he recognized that his security, his protection, his ability to be sustained had nothing to do with his financial portfolio. He realized that his protection and his security had nothing to do with his ongoing health. The reason he was able to stay courageous was not because he had the, he had the promise that, uh, you know, everything in his life circumstantially would work out. That is not what gave him confidence of protection. That is not what gave him the confidence of security. You see, in the day and age in which we live, there are many Americans running around, especially in the Christian world, and they read verses about God's protection, they read verses about God's security, and they interpret it as to mean that God is going to make them always wealthy. They're always going to have money. They're always going to have job security. They're always going to be in good health. But this is not what the scriptures are teaching. The reality is, if that were the case, then how do you describe people like Job? His health taken away, his family taken away, his security taken away. He was an upright man, and yet God stripped that from him. How how do you explain people like Joseph? 
betrayed by his brothers, maligned by his boss's wife, forgotten about by friends, betrayed by brothers. You see, God's promise for security and protection is not speaking of your circumstances. It's speaking about something much greater, much deeper. As you study the scriptures, you're going to find that Christ, as our good shepherd, he does protect. Christ, as our good shepherd, does sustain. Christ, as our good shepherd, does keep us secure. But it's a much different type of security. It's a much different type of protection. It's a much different type of sustaining. As you go through the scriptures, you'll find that Christ does protect and and sustain our joy in the midst of difficulties. Let that sink in. Even when circumstances are not going well, he protects our joy. He says you can have joy even in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials. You see, he protects our joy in the midst of difficulties. He protects our peace in the midst of problems. He sustains a sense of peace even when the world around us seems to be unraveling apart. He promises to protect and sustain our hope in the midst of disappointment. Even when things don't go our way and even when things don't unfold like we thought they should, you see that Christ is our good shepherd. He protects and he sustains our hope even in the midst of those circumstances. He protects our strength in the midst of fatigue. When we're tired, we can still experience the strength that is ours in Christ because he protects and he sustains us as our good shepherd. He protects and sustains our faith in the midst of doubt. He protects and sustains our emotions in the midst of rejection. That is to say, when you are being rejected, when you're being maligned, when you're being betrayed, you can continually know and you can have confidence in the fact that your good shepherd will sustain and protect even that emotional state. He promises to protect our minds, to sustain our minds in the midst of confusion. To give us that perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. He protects and sustains our heart in the midst of betrayal. You've ever been betrayed before? He says, I'll protect your heart. I'll sustain your heart. He protects our character in the midst of slander. He protects and sustains our identity in Christ, even in the midst of brokenness and weakness. He promises to protect and sustain our salvation, even in the midst of sin. So lest we get confused about this passage and think, oh, our good shepherd promises to protect. He promises to make us secure. That does not automatically imply, and it would be unwise of us to interpret that as meaning, I'll never have any health problems. I'll never go through financial difficulties. My circumstances will never go bad. Because that would be an eisegetical uh, misinterpretation of what God's word is trying to teach us. The reality is this, our good shepherd, 
shepherd. He protects and he sustains our joy and our peace and our hope and our faith and our heart and our mind and our identity and our salvation, even in the midst of a world that is tumultuous, in a world of problems, in a world of difficulties. He says, I'll sustain that which matters most. Too often we're shallow, aren't we? We want our God to sustain the surface things. We want our God to keep our kingdom alive. We want our God to keep our dreams and our agenda and our desires alive. He doesn't promise to protect your dreams. He doesn't promise to protect your circumstances. He promises to protect that which matters most in the midst of these circumstances. You might find this here in your service program, but you are safe, not because of the absence of danger, but because of the presence of God. That's what keeps you safe. That's what keeps you secure. That's what sustains. Not that God promises you'll never go through problems and difficulties and trials. It's the fact that your good shepherd says, I will be with you in the midst of the difficulties. I will be with you in the midst of the pain. I will be with you in the midst of the obstacles. I will be with you in the midst of the betrayal. I will be with you in the midst of your brokenness. I will be with you in the midst of your confusion. You see, the promise that our good shepherd makes is not that all of our circumstances will turn out perfect, but that he will be with us in the midst of those seasons where circumstances are not what we would prefer. Notice what he says. I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. The psalmist recognized that that is where his hope lied. His confidence was in the fact that his God would never leave him nor forsake him. That is what he anchored his hope to. Not, he did not anchor his hope to the fact that everything would turn out right. Or his life would, would end up just how he wanted. He anchored his hope and his confidence for protection and security in the presence of Christ. So how do we experience God's presence? By simple faith and awareness of his reality. Faith. How do, some of the ancients used to refer to it as practicing the presence of God. How do we experience this grace and this strength and this protection in the midst of difficult circumstances? By simple faith and awareness of his reality right here, right now, in the midst of the problem, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the betrayal, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the weakness, we, by simple faith, become aware of his reality right in the middle of all of it. That he will never leave us nor forsake us because... Because the I am tells us who we are. We are protected. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Verse 27 gives us another insight 
into this metaphor of the shepherd and its implications for us as sheep. Notice verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Notice this. And they follow me. They follow me. The I am tells us who we are. The good shepherd tells us that we are protected. But I want you to see second of all today, based on verse number 27, not only are we reminded that we are protected, but I want you to see number two, that we are also directed. We're directed. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. See, the good shepherd, he not only feeds us, but he also leads us. The good shepherd not only provides, he also guides. He not only protects, he also directs. If we went back to Psalms chapter number 23, here's what the Bible says. The good shepherd maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Notice this next phrase. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. While I was in college, I worked for a while at Walmart and uh, down in the L.A. County. And one of the things at Walmart that they would try to teach us and they'd try to train us in is the idea that when someone, a customer, asks you where something is, you know, where, where's the... You know, whatever it is, people go and buy at Walmart, which is like pretty much everything, right? Well, where's this? Where's that? They, they would often say something along this uh, lines. They would say, don't, don't give directions. Don't say, well, aisle 9 or aisle 10. They would say, don't just give directions, direct them. And the difference between giving directions and directing them was simply, hey, follow me. I will take you there. Now, what I want you to see is that there is a big difference between giving direction and directing us. But what we're going to see from the good shepherd is the good shepherd does something more than just give us directions. Would it be, which would be a wonderful thing if that's all he did, but that's not at all that he promises. He doesn't just say, oh, you want to experience this? You want to experience that? Uh, go down to aisle seven, take a ride on your left-hand side. Boom, that's the blessing you're looking for right there. He doesn't give us directions. He does something more than that. He literally directs us. He literally says, follow me. Now, notice here, as the Bible says, he leadeth me. That, that has implications for us. That, that then implies that as human beings, it's not really our job to try to figure out where we're going to be in two years or five years or seven years in a deep spiritual sense. I realize on a functional, practical plane, there's a place, you know, to kind of, you know, plan and prepare, and the Bible would even teach us to do that. But we don't anchor our hope, we don't anchor our confidence, we don't anchor our identity to those things. We anchor our hope and our confidence into the presence of Jesus. That's where we anchor our hope. That's where we anchor our confidence. You see, our job is not to place our confidence in our hope and our ability to strategize and figure out the future. Though there are practical implications for that, our job is to get as close to the shepherd as possible. And when the shepherd moves, we move. And when the shepherd walks, we walk. When the shepherd turns, we turn. We allow his presence to be our guiding force. 
How, how do we pursue God's presence? The same way we talked about a minute ago through simple faith and awareness of His reality right here, right now. now. Let me unpack this for a moment. As now I've had the privilege of pastoring for over 12 years now, I've seen that people generally, Christians in the church world, tend to make decisions one of three ways. Unfortunately, there are some Christians and their methodology for making choices about job and career and and what to do here and what to do there, basically it's as simple as, well, what do I want to do? In fact, for some people, it's it's not even literally like that thought out. It's literally like more instinctive. It's like whatever they feel like doing in the moment, it's like impulsive. They feel there's this impulsiveness to do this, they just do it and they'll think about it later. It's more instinctual, it's more impulsive, it's just what they feel like doing, which I think most of us would agree, it's probably not the wisest way to make choices in your life. I think this will make me more money, I think this will make me happier, I think this will bring me more pleasure, and they just allow almost like this animal instinct to drive their lives. I don't think most of us would be in that category. But it is one way in which people make decisions about the direction they're going to go in life. Then there's a second group, and and, and these people are definitely perceived as being more spiritual. The second group basically asks, what do they want? what What would I rather do? Would I rather do this or would I rather do that? Would I rather go there or would I rather go here? And so the the starting point is what they want, but, you know, they're spiritual enough to recognize, well, I probably should get God in on this thing. And so once they've started making the decision and once their heart and their emotions and their mind, and they've been thinking about it for a long time, they're already invested in this thing, you know, they've already kind of gotten their heart into it, they've already planted their values into it, then all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, I wonder what God thinks of this. So then at that point, they're usually, this is where they usually come to my office. Hey, pastor, we've been praying about some things, and well, it'd be a, it could be a bunch of different things. Hey, we just want, you know, we're, we're starting to think that maybe we should pray about this. And, and I look at them, and the reality is they've already made the decision. And it's not even that they need to come to me. It's that literally they, they invested their heart and their emotions and their values into a decision really before they even got God in on it. And then they realize, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, that's right. I better, I better make sure that God at least kind of approves of this thing, like I'm not totally doing something wrong. And so the reality is this, it's not much different than the first position. They do what they want to do, they get invested, they pour their emotions, their values, their heart into something, and then if God really is like, no, it's like, oh, it kills them. Because they've already invested their heart, they've already invested their their soul, their emotions, and when, when they go to the word of God and God's like, no, this is really probably not what he has for you, it just kills them. Can I tell you how wise Christians make decisions about the future in their lives? Rather than the, the first choice being, what do I want? There's this moment-by-moment moment awareness of the presence of God. And they're constantly asking them, themselves here this basic question. What can I do next that will allow me to experience God in the greatest way? 
What will allow me to experience God in the greatest way? That's where it all starts. It it doesn't start with what part of the country they like better. It, It doesn't start with what they would prefer to do. It doesn't start with what they like. It starts with this this first question. What will allow me to experience God in the greatest way next? And see, what happens is this person's mindset's totally different. You see, they don't get their heart and their emotions invested in things that might not be of God. They save themselves a lot of pain. They save themselves a lot of missteps. They save themselves a lot of sideways energy. They save themselves a lot of hurt because their entire paradigm of making decisions doesn't start with what I want or what I don't want. It starts with what what can I do to experience God in the greatest way? That's where it all starts. And in asking that question, there are moments where there are a couple options that could equally experience God in that way. And then backwards, then they have the position to say, oh, there's two options here that, man, I'm at a crossroads, and and both of them I can equally experience God and and rest in his presence. And, And then at that point, delight yourself in the Lord, and he gives you the desires of your heart. But I'm telling you what, the order in which you put that makes all the difference in the world. By asking yourself, on a moment, what, can I, what can I do to experience the presence of God in the greatest way in my next moment? I think this is in your service program, but our direction in life, the practical, functional choices in life, should not be influenced by our personal goals, but rather by our pursuit of God that that is the major influence in our lives to say, where, where right now, in this moment, how in this moment can I experience God in the deepest way? And you're just following the shepherd. I want to be close to him. I want to experience him. I want to know him. And then all of a sudden, three years, four years, five years, you'll look back and realize that he took you on a journey wow, I never, I, never, I never knew this is how this would work out, and yet God is wise enough to take you exactly where you need to be, even in the functional, practical areas of your everyday life. I'll say this, my friends, God's will is not so much a geographic place, but rather a spiritual place. I have people ask me, well, is it God's will that I be here? Or God's will that I be there? Which, uh, which one's God's will? God's will, it transcends spiritual, uh, physical places and ge- geographic places. God's will is a spiritual place. A spiritual place of contentment. A spiritual place of joy. A spiritual place of peace and of love. I- I'm going to say this. Practically, if you're experiencing no joy, you're experiencing no peace in the here and now, and you're experiencing no love in the here and now, and your whole life is discombobulated, and oh, you're kind of not feeling like it's got all together. Oftentimes, the average Christians that's not feeling peace and not feeling hope and not feeling joy, here's what they do. I must need a new marriage. 
I must need a new city. I must need a new job. I, know, I must need a new this. I must buy a new that. And it comes from this place that's discontent. I'm going to tell you what. That, that spiritual space, that spiritual place will never take you anywhere good. The impulses that flow from a discombobulated, discontent, stressed out, unhappy, no joy, no love. The decisions you make from that place, I'm telling you what, almost every time will hurt you in the long run. Because God's will is not so much a geographic position, it is a spiritual position. You show me a person whose life radiates the fruit of the Spirit. Joy and contentment and satisfaction in Christ. Peace that passeth all understanding. You show me a person whose life radiates that contentment, radiates that satisfaction, radiates that sense of fulfillment, that sense of peace, that sense of joy. You see, it is that spiritual state that is God's will. And what flows from that is most normally God's will. Because their focus is staying close to the presence of God. If you have no peace, if you have no contentment, if you have no satisfaction, if you have you no know, joy, if you're stressed out, if you're frustrated, if you're upset, I'm just telling you, it's probably not the best time to make a major life decision. <laughs> because you're not close to the presence of God. If you were... The fruit would emanate as joy, and the fruit would emanate as peace, and the fruit would animate, uh, just, uh, uh, it would come out as, as contentment. And so we see, how do we go about making these decisions? God's will is not so much a geographic place, but rather a spiritual place. And from that spiritual place blossoms healthy, productive, wise decisions because the focus is being close to the savior not looking to something somewhere out there to give me satisfaction some place out there some job some person out there to give me satisfaction because the wise christian knows that i have all the satisfaction all the peace all the joy i could ever need right here right now in christ Your good shepherd not only protects, but he also directs. Which leads us to this last, and I think we'll finish this up. But I want to encourage you with this reality. Surrender to the shepherd. Surrender to the shepherd. You can trust him. He is all-knowing. He is all-loving. You can surrender to the shepherd. The I am. I am the shepherd the I am tells us who we are. We are protected and we are directed. Are you following the presence of his spirit? Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.